This is John chapter 3, verse 16. Today we just have one verse. John chapter 3, verse 16. Now probably many of you don't even need to turn there because you can just quote it from memory. If you don't mind standing for the reading of God's word. John chapter 3, verse 16 reads, But God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare for the holidays and gifts to be given, please remind us of the gift you gave when you sent your son from heaven, the very first Christmas gift. He is the greatest gift ever given. Your son came as a baby born in a manger, wrapped like the gifts we find under our trees. And he revealed your love to us. Restore to us the wonder that came with Jesus' birth when he left the riches of heaven and wrapped himself in the rags of earth. Speak to our hearts today from your word, Lord. Help us to yield to you. Make us like the shepherds, obedient to your call. Help us to set aside distractions and worries and surrender them, surrender them all to your providential care. We long to hear from you. Clear our minds of the countless concerns and all the holiday noise. Slow us down this Christmas. Let us not be in a rush so that we miss the significance of Jesus' arrival to the world. Amid the parties and planning, help us to remember you. Keep us close to you, Lord. We ask these things in the wonderful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So uh, I must admit that I was surprised to hear the question. There we sat for our regular family time of devotion, my father, my mother, and my three sisters. And after our normal practice of reading scripture, uh, singing a family song, the children reciting our memory verses, we had a, a family discussion. And my father asked a question that I did not expect. It, it caught me off guard, and I was unprepared for it. So when he asked it, it revealed what was going on in my 8- to 10-year-old heart. Here was his question. Do you believe that your mother loves you? Do you believe that your mother loves you? I hesitated to answer the question as I looked into my mother's eyes because inwardly I knew it would take courage to say what I truly felt. The answer to the question was no. No. Now looking back on that moment as a parent, I can imagine how my mother must have felt in that moment. It must have been like a sharp knife pierced her heart as I said that response. See, at that time, my mother had a belief. She believed that it was a man's job to take a boy and shape him into a man. And so because of that belief, she believed in my father's, that was his role in the family. So as often as she could, she would facilitate my spending time with my father so that he could teach me what it meant to be a man under God. 
However, from my childish perspective, I interpreted her actions as unloving. I viewed her decisions as partiality towards my sisters and a, a distaste for my presence. To put it plainly, I felt like she liked my sisters, but she didn't like me. But nothing can be further from the truth. As the years pass and a testimony of her sacrificial actions display, her life has proven her great love for me and for my sisters. And as I matured into a man, I realized how skewed my view was as a child. I was wrong. But I was proven wrong by the evidence of her actions, which answered my uncertainty. Now, I would like to tell you that as the years passed, that, that question went away, but that question stayed with me. It, it followed me into my Christian life and haunted me over the years. It kept showing up time and time again. However, the subject of the question had changed. It wasn't, does your mother really love you, but does God really love you? And there were times, I must admit, that I did not feel like God loved me, and I would become greatly discouraged, and that would come out in my time of prayer with God when I would say to God in the, in the quietness of my room, Lord, do you really love me? And, and how can I know that you love me? I'm thankful to tell you today that God has delivered me from that. He delivered me by anchoring my wind-tossed soul by rooting it firmly with the truth of his concrete action in human history through Jesus into my heart. And now my soul clings to Christ and I have found rest from those incessant whispers that used to interrogate my mind and heart. And that's what I want to share with you today. By God's grace, we've entered another Advent season in which we celebrate the arrival of the Lord Jesus and in remembering and honoring his first coming, we find the answer to the question, does God love you? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament writers connect that mission of the Lord Jesus in taking on human nature, his willing death in our place, and his resurrection from the dead as a definitive expression of God's love for us and for the world. And it's three texts that I want to point out that show us this connection. First, of course, is our text that we're looking at today, John 3.16. Let's look at it again. For the text says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Not only does John make this connection in this gospel, but later when he writes a letter to one of the churches, he makes the same connection in different words. This is what he said. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We saw this connection when we studied the book of Romans as Paul laid it out in our sermon series as he paired these two ideas together when we came upon Romans 5, 8. Paul said there, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So God revealed his love for us by sending Jesus into the world to die for our sins. And at this time of year, we celebrate his birth as the start of that mission. So you can know that God loves you because Christ came into the world. And as Paul said at the beginning of Galatians, gave himself instead of for me here, we'll substitute the word you. See, God's love is the reason that as Mike Bongo preached about, we can have hope. Now, let me ask what some might deem as an obvious answer or obvious question. What is love? How would you define it? Love is love, right? Well, one Christian author gives a simple definition that I would like to, to start with. Max Anders in his book writes, love is the exercise of one's will for the good of another. As we begin to look at biblical evidence, we can see this unpacked. I'll, I'll raise one Old Testament and then one New Testament text to show you how we can derive this from Scripture. Well, one Old Testament text, Deuteronomy 23, 5, reads this. But the Lord your God, speaking of Israel, would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing because the Lord your God loved you. So Balaam, a prophet, whenever he said something came to pass, there was an opportunity in which he was hired to curse Israel, and God would not allow Balaam to curse Israel because he loved them, and so he turned what would have been a curse into a blessing. He acted for their good. We see uh, several examples in the New Testament, but let me return to our main text because John 3.16 supports this very definition as well, and I won't venture off from that. As we look at the verse, John 3.16, we notice that God acted for our good in Jesus. The verse indicates that God, here speaking of the Father, by using the word God, gave Jesus the Son so that through faith we would avoid perishing by gaining eternal life. Now, I don't think anyone here would view their destruction as a positive outcome, especially when eternal life is the alternative option. If you don't believe me, simply think about how we behave. We employ lifeguards at beaches and pools. We put lifeboats on ships. Why do we do that? Because we don't desire, excuse me, we don't desire our demise. And texts like Romans 13:10 speak to that same truth, but coming from the other side of the street. But I would say there's a little more to love as we consider other texts in the Bible. When we think about passages like Deuteronomy 6.4 or Deuteronomy 11.3 or Matthew 22 verses 37 through 40 or 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 3 and a variety of other texts, love seems to entail something more. Uh, there seems to be this internal component that gets wrapped up in love as well. And so with God's actions and with those scriptures in mind, I've tried to define love myself with my own definition in this way. Love is a genuine care for the welfare of another person that moves the will to act for their good, even at personal cost. So love is a genuine care for the welfare of another person that moves the will to act for the good of another, even at personal cost. And as you heard in the prayer, that's exactly what God did when we move on to verse 17 of John chapter 3. This is what it says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
See, God's actions, not our media outlet, should define what love is because as John said in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Now, the love that God demonstrated for us, I would put into the category of great when we think about him giving Christ. And I, I would like to propose three vantage points that we can approach this idea of God's love that helps us to better appreciate the greatness of the love that God displayed when he gave Christ. So the first vantage point that I want to raise for us is looking at things from the perspective of the gift that was given. Have you ever given or received a costly gift? Perhaps you were the parent who worked long hours or sold something that belonged to you or drew money out of your retirement or savings account to support the endeavors of your child. It was a costly gift. Maybe you were the spouse and your spouse had an opportunity to pursue something which meant for you the cost of you having to give up your own dream or an opportunity you could pursue, but you did it for them. It was a, a costly gift. Maybe you were the friend whose time was busy and someone else found themselves in trouble and you sacrificed what would have been valuable time for you that might have even cost you your own sleep so that you could render aid to your friend. Maybe you were the child at some point in your life who cobbled together all of your resources to be able to purchase a gift for your parent or your grandparents. Or maybe you were the relative or the fellow Christian who made the decision to donate an organ to save someone else's life. It was a costly gift. Now, one illustration of a costly gift comes to us from history. The Baptist Press retells the events that transpired so many years ago. On Sunday, April 14, 1912, the RMS Titanic crashed into an iceberg at 11.40 p.m., one of the passengers on board was a Scottish pastor by the name of John Harper. And he was traveling at the invitation from Chicago Moody Church to travel back and preach again. And he was carrying with him his six-year-old daughter because at this point his wife had passed away and he was a, a widower. When the Titanic hit the iceberg that night, late that, that night, uh, he was able to get his daughter to a, a lifeboat. Uh, and now being a widower, there was potential that, potentiality that he could have joined and been on the lifeboat, seeing that he was the sole parent to be able to care for his six-year-old daughter. But what he decided to do was to spend his last moments running from passenger to passenger, passionately telling them about Jesus Christ and giving them one more opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the ship began to submerge beneath those frigid waters, some reported John Harper as hearing him say, women and children and the unsaved into the lifeboats. He ran to one man who did not seem to be a believer and proclaimed Christ to him to which the man was not interested. And in that moment when he saw that the man rebuffed him, John Harper took off his life vest because the man did not have one on and put the life vest on him and said, you need this more than I do. Giving away that life vest meant certain death. It was a costly gift. When it came to our eternal salvation, God did not send one of his many servants to be our savior. Not even a heavenly one. He didn't send the angel Gabriel or the archangel Michael, God the Father, 
gave his best. He sent his one and only son. One commentator communicates it this way. The words, his one and only son, stress the greatness of the gift. The father gave his best, his unique and beloved son. As we saw in Romans 8.32, the comparison there supports this idea as Paul compared the gift of the son to all else that God can give. And what he said is, if God gave what was most valuable in heaven, then how will he not easily give us everything else? It points to the greatness of Jesus. As Dr. Harris, Murray Harris points out, the phrase one and only is a fine way of translating a single colorful Greek word. It refers to the only child in the family, someone who is without siblings, someone who is the sole descendant. So then in God's spiritual family, Jesus is without siblings and without equals. No one else can lay claim to the title son of God in the sense in which it applies to Jesus. So when God gave Jesus, he gave his best. And the scriptures repeatedly tell us how much God loves Jesus. As a scholar, another scholar pointed out, Christian salvation has been very costly because it cost God his son. And as we know, the son gave his life. And that is why Jesus went on to say, as we have quoted from this pulpit numerous of times, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, we can appreciate the greatness of God's love when we look at the value of the gift that he gave to save us. The second vantage point that I want to look at to appreciate the greatness of God's love is from the vantage point of the recipients who received the gift. An internet news outlet sheds light on exemplary human behavior. Returning to the story of the Titanic, we find out that in history, over some 1,500 people perished on the Titanic. The vast majority of the people who actually survived that disaster were women and children. And the reason why women and children survived is because of the selfless acts of the male passengers who bravely remained on board, knowing that they were going to meet a watery grave. And of the passengers, when we looked at the list about of those 2,240 passengers, 75% of the passengers on board were men that made up not only the, the crew, but also those who were traveling. And those who survived, of the 705 that survived, a very tiny fraction were men. The hundreds of men, both rich and poor, stood aside to let women and children board the lifeboats while they would freeze in the waters and drown to death. This was a great demonstration of sacrificial love, which we should applaud and emulate because men aboard the Titanic understood their role in society and stood, stood to let others pass by so that their lives could be saved at the cost of their own life, the role that a man should take in his family. And it's in reflecting on this reality, this exemplary behavior, that Paul compares human love in its best form, and it helps him to appreciate the love of God all the more and how great love God's love is. Paul spoke these words as Tertius penned them down. He wrote, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Now, notice how we're described in these verses. There are three words used. One, we're described as weak. That means we were helpless, not able to do anything about our situation. Two, we're described as ungodly. And three, we're described as sinners. All negative words. Undesirable, if we might say. And Paul found God's love to be of a superior quality when he looked at the best examples of, of humans' love and then looked over at God's love. Why? Because Christ gave his life for the unworthy. Now, as a general observation of human behavior, we, we, we might notice, not always true, but, but generally true that as humans, we're not willing to give up our lives for people that we don't think deserve it or we feel that think, we think that are worth it because we count our lives as too valuable. But that's exactly what God did in Christ. And Paul himself, as, as quoting these words, realized what was going on, the grace of God, because he had experienced it himself. Think back about Paul's own life. He was a, a persecutor of God's church. He had given his approval to watch Christians be persecuted and killed, and he had pursued and persecuted God's own people, and yet God chose to save him. But there's a text that we might miss in Acts if we read too quickly, and it's in Acts 10, 26. And one of the things that we notice is that the church, though Paul says that he has faith in Jesus Christ, the church says, hold on just a moment. I'm not sure that he's really changed. I'm not sure that he really is a believer. They were suspicious. They didn't believe right away that Paul had turned from a persecutor to now a proclaimer of Jesus. They thought it might have been fake. How could God love someone like him. After all the evil that he has done, how could God save Paul? We can understand their trepidation considering events in our own history and more recently. In the mid-1970s, a man, a man by the name of David Berkowitz, some of you might remember, later dubbed the son of Sam, terrorized New York City. After getting out of the military, he got involved with some friends who were involved in the occult. And after he got involved in the occult, he went on a killing spree for a year and a half. While he was on this killing spree, he would write letters to the police to taunt them. And he struck fear into the hearts of citizens. Thankfully, on August 10, 1977, he was arrested and later convicted. And after spending 10 years in prison, a fellow inmate by the name of Rick approached him in the yard while he was at that moment contemplating suicide in light of his life situation. And after Rick had introduced himself to David, he told him Jesus loved him and wanted to forgive him of his sins. To which David responded in a cold tone, I don't want to hear it. There is no way that God could love someone like me. God's not interested in someone like me. I've done too much evil. There is no hope. So Rick offered to become David's friend, and over several weeks they would talk as they would walk in the yard as they had their time outside. And over time, Rick just began to share his testimony about how God had transformed his life. And then he ended up giving him a Gideon's New Testament that had included in it Proverbs and Psalms. And David began to read Scripture. And one night while he was reading, he came to Psalm 34, verse 6. And something happened in his heart that night. 
he knelt down and in tears for the first time, he realized the great sin he had committed against others and God and society, and he wept and he begged Jesus to forgive him and to come into his life and change him. And his life changed, and he became known as the son of hope. Now, there was a, a prison guard who served at the prison where he was at who, who, named, who knew David Berkowitz by the name of Bob Alexander. And when he heard the news that David had placed faith in Jesus Christ and that his life had started to change, he said, whoa, 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 whoa. How can this be real? Is it really true that David has become a Christian? Well, after year and year in and year out of turning down opportunities for parole, living in a new way, and evangelizing others within prison, his testimony of years of change pointed that his God had actually changed his heart. See, God extends his love to those we might desire to perish because God's love is greater than human love at its best because God's love is will, willing to venture to save those in places we dare not tread. The third vantage point that I want to bring that I think can help us appreciate the greatness of God's love is from the perspective of the giver. We've looked at the gift, we've looked at the recipients, but let us look at the giver of the gift. So when Solomon, uh, at his father's heart's request, built the temple for the Lord, he offered a prayer to dedicate it. And in that prayer, he made an interesting statement about God. Solomon said this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon says about God, the highest heavens cannot contain God. Now what I want to do now is take a moment to put a modern perspective on an ancient truth. What you see in front of you right now is a picture, and it's not the whole picture. I just took a, a cross-section out of the picture that was sent to me by one of the elders. So this is a rich, recent photograph as we've taken the technology we have to look out into the universe to see as far as we can see as human sight will allow us to see into the universe and to the point where we can't see anymore. And what you're looking at there, every dot that you see up there is not a star. It's a galaxy. Now, what I want to do now is I want to zoom in on just one dot on the screen, if you'll move us to the next picture. Now, that's our dot that we live in. That's our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, or at least what they think it, it looks like. And if you notice, there's a little space right there, a little marker that indicates where our star is, which is it's just one dot in a sea of billions of dots. You, you can't even see our planet. You, you can't see us but we're a dot somewhere in that collection of dots. So let, let's zoom into our dot. There we are. Now, our planet right there is a little hard to see. It looks like a dot. And that's where you and I are. Let's zoom in on our planet for a second. Let's get a little closer. So there we are. Here's our planet. We're finally to where we live, the planet we live on out in this vast universe. Now. I don't know if you can see yourself on there yet or not. <laughs> but maybe we first need to zoom in on our country. Why don't we go to our country? Now, there's our country. And we think, oh, well, maybe if we look from our country perspective, we can see ourselves. But I don't even see you. I don't see me. 
There's still a dot. I can't even see our city. It's a dot. So let's zoom in on our state. Maybe if we look at our state, we can get a better perspective. Still, at the state level, I can't see us. I can't see your house. I can't see your car. I can't even see your life or mine. But our city, it's a dot. So let's zoom in on that dot. Now here we are, at our, and we still can't see ourselves. We're a dot in the midst of the city. Let's zoom in once more. All right, there's at least our church, where we're at right now. There we are. And I still would need to zoom in one more time to get down to where we are. Now I want you to take a moment and think about what you just saw. Now Solomon said that God is so great that the heavens, that was the first picture I showed you and not the whole picture, cannot even contain him. Now, how far do we have to come down to find out where we are? How small are we compared to the greatness of God? And yet what John says here is that God, as great as he is, cares about you. And he loves you. And now I can appreciate why David exclaimed in the Psalms when he said this. I can feel the weight of his words when he says, well, look, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you should care for him? You're not even a speck. I'm not even a speck. And yet God knows everything about your life down to the hairs that are on your head. How great is God's love? It's great. It's great. God's great love, though, requires a right response from us. Notice in the text, John 3.16 says that there is something that is asked of us, that is required of us, that is to start believing and keep believing in Jesus to receive eternal life. Let me draw again upon the work of Dr. Murray as he brings out the clarity of what's going on because there's a little phrase here in the original language in which uh, John, he does a different phrase early in verses 14 and 15, but when he gets to verse 16, he changes the phrase. He, he's almost, it seems like he's coined a phrase to talk about belief in Jesus in a particular way. And that's what Dr. Murray brings out. And he says this believing, this, this trusting in Jesus, he describes it this way. It is not merely that we are being asked to believe a certain facts about Jesus or to believe that all this teaching is true. The belief that is being spoken about by John and that is reflected in John's new idiom is all-encompassing. It involves the total commitment of one's life and one's whole self to the person of Christ as Messiah and Lord forever. When we believe in Jesus, we're entrusting ourselves to him forever, relying on him for our acceptance by God and devoting ourselves to serving him. That's what it means to believe. In Jesus. Now, John would go on later in his letter to restate what God expects of us when he said this. Notice what he writes, and this is his commandment, God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, in the way that I just described, and love one another just as he commanded us. God wants us to believe in Jesus, and he wants us to love one another. Now, John, just earlier before this text, gave us an example of what that love looks like. Let me remind you, we've heard this before, but I'll remind you. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. One of the ways that love is displayed is through the generosity that we display to others because our heart cares about their welfare and it causes us to share our resources with them to meet their needs. We find another example in Deuteronomy chapter 22. One that maybe you read recently in your devotional readings. It says this, as, Paul, as, as uh, Moses quotes and recites for them what God expects of Israelites in relationship to other Israelites. You should not see your brother's ox or sheep going astray and ignore them. You should take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you should do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any other lost thing that is your brother's, which he loses and you find you may not ignore it. You should not see your brother's donkey or his ox falling down by the way and ignore them. You shall help them to lift them up again. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, sums it up in these words. He says to us, don't merely look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. The understanding is that you care about another person so as that when they need help, you render aid. You don't simply turn. A blind eye. What I've shared with you today is that God greatly loves you. And the reason that you can know this, and you don't have to let your feelings drive you this way or that way, is because you simply look at Jesus. And as a result of knowing this, you ought to trust in Jesus and love others. Let me conclude by showing you a video of what this looks like when we love others in the way that Christ has loved us in a modern example, then I'll come back up and pray and we'll close out our time. Turn your attention to the screen. I had an accident and my hip was broken in so many pieces. I have two rods in my hip. She's an angel among us. If you watch her in the bread company, everyone comes in to see Catherine. You know, we sell the bread, but I feel like there are some people who specifically come with prayer requests, and uh, I go pray for them. One day when we were sharing, she said she was in need of a different car, that her car was needing expensive repairs. I had been saving money but uh, I knew it wasn't enough, so I knew I would take a few years to save for it. So a couple of months later, I went in and I said, Catherine, how's your car fund coming? And she said, I gave it all away. And I looked at her and, and she said, there was a widow in need, and I gave her the $5,000. I struggled a lot when I gave that money. And uh, I said, I feel okay, but uh, do you think I did the right thing? I mean, I cannot give what I don't have, so I just gave what I had. I was shocked, and so I come home and I tell Pete that we needed to help Catherine with her car fund. He looked at me and he said, 
No, I think we need to buy Catherine a car. And I said, okay, great. Pete called Scott and said, do you know Catherine at Great Harvest? And he said, yes, he did. Pete said, well, we'd like to buy her a car. He asked Pete, do you want to use your new car? And it just hit him right in the face. Why would he ask me that? Of course I would want a used car. That's good enough. He just paused for a moment, and he said, I want a new car. And he said it was silent on the phone for a few seconds. And Scott said, whoa, I want to help. And so he pitched in some. So she came to the bakery and uh, she asked me, if you were to buy a car, what kind of a car would you like? I said, Debbie, I'm not really planning to buy a car. But she said, oh, just tell me. And she said, I'd like a SUV cruise control. And she said, I'd like a light color. And we called Scott. And he said, I think I've got the perfect car. So Pete said, can we deliver it tomorrow? So we have the bread company owner and his family, Scott and his family and our family. And Catherine sees us all coming in and she's just all excited to see everyone. And uh, I went to give them hugs and I said, what's Pete doing here? I did have the, the biggest idea. When I went out, And so we walked her over to the car. We said, Catherine, this is your new car. So, oh, I said, for me, this is for me. I said, oh, I, I knew God had many cars, but I didn't know he had a new one for me. So God had new cars <laughs> for me. We all stood there in tears as we saw the joy on Catherine's face. And we got to be a part of it. And the joy of that was unbelievable. It's so right, but it was such an excitement to drive it. We told Catherine that we would like this to be confidential. But I kept running into people who would say, I heard what you did for Catherine. It wasn't even us, it was Catherine. It all started with Catherine giving of what she had to a widow to help her, and it just continues on. Generosity begets generosity. We don't give in order to receive. We give because it's the nature of Jesus Christ. He gave us his life. So we, we have the, the DNA of Jesus Christ of giving. <laughs> yeah, so this is one story I will never forget in my life. God loves you because he gave Christ.
for you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, just as you sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus, clear the path in our hearts too. Show us the distractions in our lives that block us out from all-out worship 